you don't. <laughs> we, we do say one, two, because this is Set the Table episode 12. I am John, and with me as always is Jack. How's it going, eh? And uh, this is episode 12. Uh, we're going to be talking about outcomes for bad roles. Um, on this, the podcast where we talk about tabletop role-playing games and uh, improving your DMGM skills. Uh, we start off with a recap of our adventures from the past week. Uh, so, Jack, why don't you go first? What uh, What did you play? I played uh, two games. We, we finished up our Monster of the Week uh, adventure, and... It went well. The, we concluded successfully. Nobody died. We we found the monster and beat it. Monster of the week is a it's a I don't know kind of a 1980s style horror. Uh, pe- kids in middle school confronting monsters, that kind of thing. It uh, it was a little challenging for me to play because it was set in the 1980s, uh, and that brought up lots of. Uh, memories about what what was like back then and the group I was playing with they weren't born in the 19 they were weren't even born in the 1980s hmm. so so there was a little bit of a culture like oh hey we're gonna go do this and it's like um n- no in, in the <laughs> 1980s exist here. that doesn't exist or uh real so things like so in the 1980s that's when a lot of the blue laws were being uh rescinded so in a lot of states, you can buy alcohol on Sunday. Like, there's a couple states still where that's true, but that was much more prevalent in the 1980s kind of thing. So mm-hmm. just different. Like, oh, hey, we're going to go talk to this person. It's like, you'd never go do that. Why? No. What? <laughs> so just weird, weird stuff like that. It, it was it, – and I was playing a pre-gen character, which is hit or miss for me. Yeah, um, but it was good. I, I had a good time. It, it was fun. Um, it was just a little challenging uh, to to be a, try to put myself back in that mind mindset. Right. Uh, and then the then our five five e game, um, more hijinks and and double crossing and tracking people down. We're trying to build a small army um, to to take on <clears throat> another group of people and and kick them out of their house. There's a brothel being run by a succubus that Delrea wants as her headquarters. So we're trying Ooh. to figure out how many fighters we need to send in there uh, to kick the succubuses out. So fun stuff. Very fun stuff. Yep. I love hearing about her. So what did you play? Um, my group played Five E. Uh, we uh, they have concluded the battle at the volcanic caldera um stopped a ritual that had potential to end the world uh went back to the city where they were were sort of working out of um got some some rewards uh the king threw them a feast celebration day um they they did some shopping at an eccentric enchanter who they seemed to enjoy um, and they they started making strides towards their next goals, which is um, Connie, the human bard of the group, received 
an animal messenger in the form of a butterfly after the battle at the caldera had concluded and the winds had died down and animals and birds and things were starting to be seen again uh, asking uh, him to return to meet with somebody who he had worked for back in prosperous um, and he he had left the city originally because he had gotten uh, mixed up in an assassination attempt um, and then had his friends and acquaintances start being mysteriously uh, poisoned or otherwise disappeared in sort of indirect ways. Um, so he bounced, tried to find some some peace and quiet, and that's sort of when the party found him. And he hasn't really had that since, but now he has to go back, and uh, it's going to be good. I've got quite a bit of lore for the city of Prosperous and its surrounding area. Um, so it's going to be, uh, oof, I don't know, it'll be, it'll be different going from wide open world places to city and the web of lies and intrigue that exists there. So um, definitely a change of pace, but I think it will be good. Very cool. Uh, so last time we talked uh, about fudging roles, and uh, part of determining what happens with roles is dealing with outcomes for bad roles, and how you as a DM can make them make sense and, and be punishing in a, a realistic way that is both narratively and, and real, you know, realistic in terms of the world appropriate um, without just being punitive and unfun. Um, but before we get into our... Um, deep conversation because I think per the notes some of the answers here are going to sort of segue into that uh, we had a patron question uh, from one of our listeners who asks uh, it's a question for you who asks what do you look for in a perfect PC and what has influenced and changed that over the years um, so I'm going to let you run away with this one and I'll jump in when I need to Okay. Well, I'll give it a shot. So, first of all, I the I, I won't I won't denigrate the concept of a perfect PC because, um, but there are some PCs that I really enjoy playing. I don't know if I'd call them perfect, but they're fun and engaging, and I connect with them. Um, and then there are a lot of characters that I roll. Um, characters and NPCs that just fall flat. They're, I don't connect with their story. Uh, I don't relate to them as characters. They're just not fun to play. Um, and, and, and I think that that's different for all players. Like, and, and, um, and thinking about, when I was thinking about this question, I thought about TV shows. And you watch a TV show... And everybody loves this character. It's like, oh, that that character's the best. And and I, I just like, oh God, I something just rubs me the wrong way about that character. Mm -hmm. Uh and it's just, oh, you know, I, I don't want to watch this show or, you know, I'll watch the show, but that that, you know, everybody's, oh, this guy's so great. It's like, nah, you know, no, they're not. Or um, or NPCs that you build when you're DMing that your PCs love, but you don't, or vice versa. Sure. You know, you, you, you spend a lot of time crafting this NPC and they're, they're pivotal to the, to the game. 
and fireball the the the, well, the, the players like <laughs> meet them don't get on well with them and they're like oh god we gotta cart this guy around oh man mm-hmm. um or you make the random shopkeeper that all of a sudden is the central plot to your your adventure um and uh, and and your whole session turns into a how do we move boxes around a warehouse for for Freddy because Freddy's mm. our favorite shopkeeper. Um, but I guess the the way I kind of approach this is uh, I laid out kind of the steps that I've taken with successful characters. Sure. So, characters so you've talked I've... about you've talked about Dolrea quite a bunch on the show. Would you consider her one of your successful characters? I think Del Rey is probably a successful character, yep. Um, the clone, and as far as NPCs go, um, YH3A-1 is a clone from Paranoia, uh, and that was really, really successful. That he, he, I don't think we ever assigned, yeah, a gender. He just kept saying, yeah. Um, <laughs> he was... He was an infrared clone, so they're heavily drugged and they have really crummy jobs and uh, they basically hot rack with somebody else. So they're working 12 hours a day, sleeping and eating and, and kind of re-drugging themselves 12 hours a day. Mm. But um, So I, I kind of listed out the steps. Basically, I think about the system that I'm playing uh, and the group that I'm playing with. So... Uh, that's kind of the first thing uh, when I sit down and I th- I'm going to roll a character for this to play with this group and we're playing whatever it is. Um, you know, Monarchies of Mao. Okay, cool. I'm going to make a cat and what kind of cat do I want to be? Um, and that's kind of the next thing is like, what would, what do I want to play? And what would, what would I be comfortable playing for a while? Like if this character lives for a whole year worth of, uh, real-time playing, um, am I going to still be happy with this character after, you know, what is that, 50-ish, 40, 40-ish game sessions? Yeah, ide- ideally at least, but right. scheduled. And, yeah, just, just if, you know, some, some characters are great to play for, like, a couple of sessions, and then it's not so bad if they get mulched or um, go away or something happens to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and other characters, it's like, eh, you know, I, I really, really want to keep playing this one and see what happens. So after I kind of have those, that stuff worked out in my head, or usually I'm doing this on a scratch piece of paper, um, I'll just start to think of a narrative flashback. Like before I even picked class, um, I'll start with a writing prompt, like, this character is at the end of the day and right before they drift off to sleep, they recall a time in their past where they did blah or mm, interesting um, or yeah. We're walking from this place to this place and I'm daydreaming. What are they day And they're daydreaming about something that happened in their past. What are they daydreaming about? So um, I'll basically do, we used to do this in, in college for my uh, undergrad in creative writing you just have a writing prompt and you write as fast as you can for five to seven minutes and that's my prompt like Hmm. uh it's it's the end of the day and i'm i'm brushing my horse and i'm thinking about that time that i blah and then i'll just start writing 
Very um, cool. I liked those sort of writing prompts in school too. And it 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 just it and it doesn't have to. I I mean sometimes they turn into many many pages and sometimes it's just a couple of paragraphs. Mm-hmm. Um, just to get the juices flowing about that character. About that character and and then based on the system, the next bullet I have is connect to canon. So with Dolrea, actually Dolrea is a um, supporting cast member for a backstory for a different character altogether. Um, And that character's backstory turned into this, it's not really novel, probably novella length um, story. And she was just one of the kind of bit players in that story, but she was interesting. Uh, and I, I picked her up and, and started running with her. But um, if you can connect it to canon, so we're playing 5e, we're playing in Faerun. Uh, Neblins are, are the dark gnomes, right, from the Underdark. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dalrea was a, an accountant for a matron mother. Uh, a drow matron mother. So, of course, I pull out all of my R.A. Salvatore and my three five source books for the Underdark and Menzo Barons on, and uh, I think I I think I based based the care the the Drow family more on Lisa Smedman's work in um, the War of the Spider Queen novel series. But anyway. I started, you know, this is a real drow house. This is, they're, they're outside of Ched Nazad. They do these things, blah, blah, blah. So she's got real connections to the, the mythology, the mythos, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I think about a raison d'être, which is a big French fancy yeah, I was word. Say, for us non-French for, folks. <laughs> uh, a reason to be. Why, what's, what's driving this character? What do they want to do? Um with their life? What do they want to do when they grow up? Are they happy with what they're doing now? Uh, and then once I've got all of that kind of worked out on my scratch pad, uh, then, and only then, will I look at class, cast, clan, job, um, what's the Starfinder? Like, that. that's when I'll say, okay, Based on all of this, this this feels like a bard, or this feels like a cleric, or um, this this feels like um, us- an envoy. If we're playing Starfinder, right? Sure. Whatever, whatever the system is, uh, that's where I'll I'll fit them into kind of what goes on, and then after that, I'll start looking at stats. Sure, you're a you're a theme first, mechanics after kind of developer. And 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 as we said, I'm I'm a bit of a method actor. Uh, I'm a bit of a tactician, um, and this really helps me kind of get into that mindset. Mm-hmm. Now I don't do this with all games, right? If I'm playing DCC or MCC, I just roll my four chumps for the funnel, and we shove them into the meat grinder. Um, right, but you still like it's it's much less backstory development in those. But even with that funnel, as, as you play those characters, you sort of develop all of these things over the course of the funnel. And then if you're left yeah. with two of them, then you you know I I did that a little bit, dug a little bit deeper for them. But 
um, writing, you know, four PCs where there's a pretty good chance two or three of them are going to die in the first two hours is, uh, not a waste, but that's a lot of energy that could have been spent on a character that you will get to play for a longer time. Right. So then I started thinking about the, the, so that's, that's how I arrive at characters that I enjoy playing, right? Yeah, your, your uh, version of the perfect PC. My version of the perfect PC, right? I followed this process, and I've gotten some really great characters that I enjoyed playing. Uh, I followed this process, and I got a character. Um, I really like the character. Uh, I saved him off someplace so I can come back to him. Mm-hmm. But uh, just did not work in Tomb of Annihilation. It was just a complete... Um, just no bueno it, it it just it failed on so he failed on so many levels um it wasn't fun it wasn't fun right it's like okay you know i'm here i am we're we're getting close to the boss fight i played a gunslinger pirate um no magic weapons so i'm doing half damage to every monster leading up to the boss fight and it's like so you know i feel about as useful as uh teats on a bull so let's do something different. And, and, and yeah, I talked to my, my DM uh, and we were, we were kind of in the middle of a fight and it's like, so I kind of want to go out in a blaze of glory. Um, can I bring a new character in or do you want me to sit out while everybody kind of finishes, wraps up the, the story? And he's like, no, you can bring a new character in. Um, but I was, yeah, I was kind of done playing that character. And I yeah. followed all these steps. I have a beautiful backstory, right? Um, washed off of a, um, washed out to sea near Luskin uh, as a dwarf foundling found by mer- found and attempted to be raised by mermaids until they realized that the the child wasn't going to survive, uh, and then cast up in a fishing net on a on a fishing trawler and turned into a cabin boy, uh, and that's how I got a dwarf gunslinger who's a pirate. Nice. And that's like, for all of... We made it... Not we. uh, You make it seem like that process is a lot of time and can be, um, you know, a lot of effort for somebody who might be new to a tabletop game or a DM who is writing, who wants to write, you know, meaningful backstories for their characters. They may not go through all of this. But that summary right there two sentences to describe what is, you know, a pretty unique and interesting background for a character. Um, it does, yeah, I, it doesn't have to be yeah. this long process. If you get no. something like that and it really works, then you check all the boxes, you just check them very quickly. Um, yes. But it works, and he, he was definitely an interesting character. Interesting character just didn't fit the adventure we were on right Um, right. so so then the the second part of the question is what influenced and changed over the years and so uh i'm older than dirt i've been rpg you're not older than dirt i'm older than some dirt maybe some dirt dirt. okay um (laughs) so so it's been about 40 years give or take uh, that I've been playing uh, tabletop RPGs. I started in uh, the late 70s 
uh, and I, I kind of have chunked up because things have changed over time, right? Um, in the 1980s, I was in high school and I had a different world perspective and I had different uh, influences. So that's kind of how I've chopped it up. I chopped it up by decade uh, and I'll just run quickly through um, like where I was and what started and, and what were my influences and some example characters that kind of fit that perfect PC uh, sure, mold. Sure, sure. And so this, we'll is sort of, this is sort of the the Jack Skoda version. Uh, this is like your Appendix N. Um, kind of, yeah, yeah. It's it's also kind of my version of Shannon Applecline's Des- Designers and Dragons book series uh, hmm. or my, my personal journey through that. Uh, those books are fabulous for, for folks that like kind of the history of, of the industry and where different authors came from and went to and wh- why some companies don't exist anymore and, and that kind of thing. Those books are fabulous. But All right, so here's the rundown. Yeah, go for it. So we'll start in the 1980s. When I made characters in the 1980s, um, well, systems. I was playing AD&D, uh, Classic Traveler, Gamma World, Ghostbusters, Gangbusters. Um, I'm trying to think if I'm forgetting something. No, those. That's it. Uh, so, no connection to party. I would read through the book and say that character's cool. I'm going to make make one of those. Uh, as far as player character motivations or motivations for playing the game myself, um, in the '80s, it was all about power, nobility, and chivalry for me. And as far as influences go, uh, Lloyd Alexander, those books are fabulous. That's the Black Cauldron series. Mm-hmm. There's five of those books. Uh, Fritz Lieber, that's uh, Great Fafford and the Grey Mouser. Arthurian Legends, Lord of the Rings. Uh, I, I call it real Battlestar Galactica, but the original Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> um, Star Wars had come out uh, in that time frame. Uh, and then some some of the late 70s, early 80s dystopian future, Logan's Run. Um, and then Circle of Iron, that's a David Carradine movie based off a of Bruce Lee plot. Um, so that's kind of, that's what I was reading and that's kind of the things that I was into. And uh, as far as an example goes, one of my longest lived characters uh, was a chaotic good drow cavalier uh, we had played the G series against the Giants, which then leads to the D series. This is this is these are TSR uh, Dungeons and Dragons modules. Uh, yeah. That's Descent into the Underdark D1, D2, D3, and then the Q Q1 is Queen of the Demon Web Pit. So you get you fight the Giants, you level up, you go into the Underdark, you fight Drow Elves, you level up. Uh, and then you go into the abyss and you kick the crap out of Lolth, uh, and it's it's the end of the story. Uh, and so I had a I picked a Drow Cavalier uh, who was basically going back to to repay the females for their for their misdeeds. Um, you liked Drow before Drow were cool. I liked Drow before the first Drist book hit. Yes. Um, I did not play them the same way that Ed Greenwood and uh, R.A. Salvatore wrote them, um, but 
it, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. So we get into the 1990s. So that's kind of, so that's 80s. We get into the 90s, and then in the 90s, I shifted gears from fantasy to World of Darkness, like a lot of people did, right? Vampire the Masquerade came out in, in 90, 91, 92, uh, and that's, we, everybody shifted to vampire, um, or my group, the groups that I played with shifted to, to vampire, uh, werewolf, mage, that kind of thing. Uh, so in the 90s, when I started making characters, um, I would look for affiliation by race, clan, or goal, right? So, um, yeah, I mean, lots tribe, of the right? that world of darkness stuff is is very clan based. It's very right? like your, your class is a clan, basically, right? Or a tribe. And in in, in mm-hmm. the case of my my favorite character from this this era, uh, I played a werewolf. Who was a glasswalker? Those are the uh, urban werewolves, and, and he was a uh, financier, and he was basically trying to uh, buy and freeze companies that were contributing to the worm. So, for those not familiar with Werewolf the Apocalypse uh, from White Wolf Games, you're a werewolf, and there's this thing called the worm, and it's destroying Mother Nature, and it's, you know, big corporations and global warming and pollution and all that stuff. Uh, and you as the werewolves are fighting it. It's a losing battle. You're going to lose. Um, the, the world is is ending, uh, but you're raging against the, the dying of the light, so to speak. So that was, uh, he was VT. Um, he basically just had two initials uh, for his, his name, but that was his, his, his jam. He, he would work with the other werewolves and, work with wall street and try to buy things and freeze freeze accounts and every once in a while he'd he'd wolf out uh and kill kill somebody but it was it was a good time uh as far as influences go that that was kind of again with the shift to world of darkness uh ann rice poppy z bright nancy collins edgar rice burroughs a little bit of jules verne in there as well um and hg wells so turn turn towards the vampire stuff right yeah it makes Um, makes sense for for the 90s too uh there's no stephanie meyer in there okay so (laughs) so, uh not twinkly vampires right i mean if you read any of poppy z bright stuff that's very very dark um some some of that poetry is is pretty yeah, it's good poetry. It's just very. I yeah, I haven't heard that name before, so I'll have to I'll have to do some some research. Yeah, I have uh, paperbacks downstairs somewhere, but. Yeah. So so yeah, so that was that was those the nineties, uh, in the two thousands. I kind of I GM'd a lot for young children, uh, so so that kind of I didn't really play. Um, I wasn't really playing at that point. I was teaching. Um, a, a group of people. One of them is you, John. Uh, um, yep. So, so I did a lot of GMing. Didn't do a lot of playing, and I, I did also kind of shifted more towards video games, right? So, Assassin's Creed, uh, Dragon Age. Who do, who doesn't love Dragon Age, right? Um, right? Skyrim, all those kinds of things. 
little early for Skyrim, but yeah, you're playing, oh, yeah, a, lot of, a, playing a lot of World of Warcraft in the 2000s. In the 2000s, there was a lot of World of Warcraft, and uh, Pirates of the Burning Sea was another one that popped out. Yeah. Um, trying to think of other... But, but yeah, so... And it wasn't it wasn't until closer to the ten, to the tens um, that I started playing again, uh, and and that that's when I kind of shifted to a a role or story fit. So if I'm making a character, right, bullet number one is what system and what's the group. So then I started thinking about okay, with this group, uh, that's this is the kind of character that's going to be fun to play with that group over there. They're a little bit more raunchy, right? When my my group out in Ohio, uh, we're all in our fifties. Uh, we're not playing with any little kids, um, and we we know each other fairly well, and we kind of know where everybody's uh, lines are for for what you can get away with and what you can't get away with, and yeah, and um, you know, we're a little bit more racist if we're playing. I mean, if we're playing Call of Cthulhu and it's the nineteen twenties we can be sexist and racist with each other because we're in the 1920s and nobody gets offended because that's kind of the way uh, we are. We're sweet guys, all, all fabulous folks. None of them are racists, but I can, I can attest to that for the ones that I have met. And, and so, but, but if we're, you know, if we're in New York city um, and we're in Harlem and we're white characters, you know, there's, we, we role play accurately. Yeah, I mean it's okay. it's part of the. I I have been reading. I started to read the uh, the Lancer rules, and one of the first things in that rule book is like this is a dystopian future world where utopia exists, but is being constantly fought against. And here's the disclaimer that there is racism and injustice and all of this, and it's not meant to glorify it, but it is part of the world. So. Right. So so that was like role and story fit. That's when I'm making a character. That's where I'm at. Um, and then my motivations have also changed, right? Oh, I didn't talk 1990s. I skipped motivation. Gosh. Um, so in the 90s, we my characters were more about growth, connection, and power. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a lot of that world of darkness stuff is personal growth, you know, dealing with the fact that uh, I lost my temper and and shredded my um, administrative assistant secretary, uh, and now I have to go hire a new secretary. <laughs> well, first I have to hire cleaners to clean all the blood off the walls, and then I have to go hire a new secretary. <laughs> um, so growth, and then those games, a lot of those games I played online uh, in the, in the mug, mush mud mucks uh, modality. So. This is pre-World of Warcraft. You'd sign in through the internet um, at the 1990s version of the internet and kind of play uh, over text chat. So a lot of those, a lot of those characters, a lot of that time was spent like connecting with other players and and uh, connecting with other PCs in the world and that kind of thing. Um, For the for the tens. my motivation is more story. Like what's this, what's the story we're trying to tell and where, where, where is this character? How can this character contribute to that? Um, and then as far as influences go, right. Uh, Lovecraft, Marcus Heights, that's the dwarves. Uh, oh, yep. Books. Okay. 
uh, R.A. Salvatore. Uh, and then, yeah, and then Jules Verne, Lisa Smedman. I think Lisa comes later. Yeah, so we'll see. We'll leave Lisa off for this one. Um, but some of my best characters in this group, um, yeah, YH3A1 was an NPC, um, but he he was fabulous. Paranoia, we were playing Paranoia, um, okay. and he became that NPC that the party, I mean, he came in to mop up a spill that was it that was it that's that's the this i made this npc they were gonna walk in they were gonna clean something and walk out and the whole purpose of that that character was kind of motivating the party because if you don't do well in paranoia you can get demoted to an infrared citizen instead of a red citizen um, and it's, I was trying to show the party like, yeah, you, this yellow citizen is bossing you around and they're kind of an a-hole, but you really want to pay attention to them because you don't want to wind up like that guy. Um, <laughs> and that guy turned into like, where's, where's yay? We haven't seen yay today. So then I'd have to give, I'd have to give yay a job. I mean, it, it got to the point where the, where the party was actually, making messes to see if yay would show up or if they would send a scrub bot to clean the clean the mess oh that's fun <laughs> um but you know it was it was a lot of fun and and so i gave yay a couple of jobs like um he was supposed to hang up a a poster that the computer had printed off for him and the computer had only given him three pieces of tape so he was <laughs> taping he would tape the top left corner and then he would tape the top right corner, and then he would tape the bottom right corner, and then he would take the tape off the top left corner and tape the bottom left corner. <laughs> and so, so they're like, "Yay, what are you doing?" It's like, "I'm taping up the poster." <laughs> <laughs> and then it was poor just yay. yeah, poor yay. And then um, I made um, Giuseppe for Seven C uh, was a Vadache. Um, explorer pirate uh rake uh and that was a blast he was he was a ton of fun to play and then we get to today right the 20s and same thing i'm still fitting into stories uh but now i'm also kind of at the point after 40 years where i'll sit down and think about what haven't i played right delray is my first bard in 25 years nice uh, so um, and then I played Steps on Tail was a tabaxi monk. He was my first monk in almost 30 years. Dang. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of, there's some character classes I, I play. Um, I, don't, I'm, I don't think I've ever played a druid. Uh, I also <laughs> have, I've never played a warlock. Neither one of those kind of fits. I never tell a story um, about being in the woods and, and that kind of thing, and I don't tell you know I, I don't do warlocks for whatever reason but anyway um what about what it, about barbarians seems uh, unlike you but i don't know i i think my last barbarian was probably 35 years ago dang it was probably in the 80s in the in the mid mid to late 80s interesting um, but yeah so so that's i'm kind of I'm, I look back at my list of characters, the ones that were memorable and I had fun and it's like, ah, or I look through the rule book and I go, you know, I've never played that. I've never been uh, 
an inquisitor. I've never been uh, an alchemist. Let me try that. Um, so that's kind of where I'm at now. As far as motivation goes, it's still story driven, although now I'm kind of in this, uh, what would that character do next? So I try to put myself in their headspace and go, yeah, you know, I'm a Smurf Neblin who's used to uh, luxury and I don't have it anymore. Let's get some money and get some luxury. Uh, and so that's kind of what's driving her. And then as far as influences go, um, Jules Verne still there. Uh, I reconnected with Fritz Lieber after several years. I went back and started reading all the Fritz Lieber stuff again. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I'm trying to broaden uh, my my uh, fantasy genres. So I picked up Lisa Smedman's War of the Spider Queen. I also started reading um, Mercedes Lackey because out at Gen Con, um, was it Gen Con or Origins? No, it was Gen Con. Uh, I started talking to folks about a role play game uh, called Blue Rose. And I learned that there is a whole genre of fantasy literature, um, fantasy romance which is very different from what I think of. Like when we talk about high fantasy and low fantasy, right? I'm thinking Lord of the Rings, Lankmar, right? You're either in Middle Earth or you're, you're schlepping around in, in a fantasy urban setting uh, trying to make, a, make ends meet. And then right. I found that there are several authors in this genre. So I started picking up the Mercedes Lackey is, is one of the, the founding mothers of that movement. And they're actually very good. I, I was uh, the the story hooked me. Um, I, there was minimal violence um, in in the actual story itself, but it was it's, in it's a it's a romance tale, right? So, well, so it, and and the thing was, it wasn't like syrupy, schlocky, you know, Harlequin. You're probably too young to remember Harlequin romances, but um, that was a very popular harlequin's a publisher uh they publish these very um you know they're all they're basically for housewives in the 1950s 60s and 70s sure uh, like that version of today's 50 shades of gray or something something like that yeah but it was always you know it's a, it's a nice guy and and there's a the, there's a there's a young lady you know there's the mary mary sue right is which is that that archetype Right, the the average gal and the the handsome stranger comes into town and does something nice for them and they hit it off and they have some dates and it's very kind of you know romantic and fun. Um, it wasn't like that. Okay. There 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 were elements of building a relationship. There was a story um, that people were trying. There was a a good side and a and a bad side and the folks from the good side had things that they were trying to accomplish um and, and the folks from the bad side were trying to stop them uh but it didn't i'm trying to think no yeah that very very few times did anything ever devolve into like fisticuffs it was always like oh you know we the one of the stories was about a bard a young lady who plays a fiddle and and it's like hey you're not allowed to play on this street corner and then she gets a bunch of friends to help her like gain legitimacy to play on the street corner it's very kind of relationship building it was it was very different it was very interesting you know having come from 
Lord of the Rings and, you know, where everything gets solved at the point of a sword. It was just, a, it was, it was refreshing actually. No, it sounds interesting. Um, I came across a term months ago when I was yeah, exploring some aspects of how I was writing adventures. Um, it comes from Japanese, I think, and the term is Kisho Tenketsu, which is to say a four-act narrative or plot without conflict. So, like, if you look at any American movie in the past, however long, you've got, you know, main character, protagonist, antagonist. There's some conflict that they build up to, to a resolution and a climax. Like, that's sort of how we get taught narrative writing in the West. Um, but exploring this, again, it's Kisho Tenketsu. Um, was kind of interesting to, to making those adventures and, and quests that aren't necessarily go here, beat up a guy, go back and talk to the person who asked you to beat him up. Like, just to, to put a, a, a break in that sort of regular gameplay loop. So when you say right. refreshing, that's totally what, what triggered in my mind. And very and that, cool. I mean, and that takes. I mean, that's. I've chewed up way more time than I thought I would. But that's kind of no, where we're okay. at here. Now, the question I wanted for you, because you've you haven't been at this as long. No. Have you noticed changes in your play style? Uh, yeah, uh, definitely, definitely. Um, I mean, you knew me when I. You were the one who taught me role play games, so. Um, like earlier today, you sent me that email of what I'm pretty sure was my first character sheet ever. Um, and it was, a uh, uh, human cavalier. So, um, that was sort of how I got my start. Uh, the whole knight in shining armor, sort of classic, uh, like Disney prince kind of character. Um, and as soon as I figured out how things worked mechanically, so in, in the 2000s there, uh, playing like World of Warcraft, um, uh, it was clerics and paladins for me for the longest time. Um, I, I liked mechanically to have that versatility to be sort of a hybrid class, and I hated dying. I wanted to have all of the things that I could do to stop myself or others from dying. That felt super powerful. Um, and I, I still do that in lots of uh, RPG video games that I play. I will play a, a healer class or a hybrid healer um, just because I, I like, I, I really enjoy the the value that that has and feeling like you're, you know, saving lives. Um, but since, uh, definitely in terms of tabletop RPGs, um, I mean, I have a paladin who I ran as a, a NPC in this latest arc um, for certain parts of it, but otherwise, I haven't, you know, sat down and played a cleric or paladin myself at a table. Oh shoot, I can't say that either because I am playing um, an Oathbreaker paladin in Thornton's alternative games. So um, I am still playing them, but I'm playing them very differently. Yeah. Um, and I, I've explored other things. Uh, the last thing that I played that was, you know, pretty unique past Osric, who I've talked about on the show before, was um, a gnome alchemist, a uh, Pathfinder character, whose name was Oxford Winchesterton Fieldville. 
Um, and he was this kooky alchemist gnome with a, a half-burnt eyebrow and a tail that he kept. He keeps, you know, tucked up under his kilt when he can help it. Uh, that was the result of a mutation from a failed experiment. Um, but that was that's definitely out of the range of anything that I had played before. Um, and and I, I still try to... I've been exploring more with rangers and rogues. Um, my The 5e character that I have played most recently beyond Osric myself uh, is a half-orc uh, lady ranger named Kansif Dust Tread, um, who is a dual-wield hand-axe ranger, uh, kind of inspired from, from playing a ranger in Neverwinter a little bit. Um, which, again, uh, is the video game reference, but is pretty different from what I had played in the past, um, especially because Neverwinter Rangers don't have a lot of that utility, um, they don't have a lot of tankiness, and they don't have a lot of healing, so playing that raw DPS was never something that I really enjoyed, but I, I did, so um, I, I'm, I'm exploring different things. Uh, and, and probably much to your surprise, since you know me and uh, you said it um, on the episode, I think it was the episode we had Thornton on, that if you want to mess with, you want to mess with John in a D&D game, you throw some wand tea in there, because I have a, an aversion to snakes. Um, but interestingly enough, when Osric either dies in the alt game or I decide to move on from playing him, my next character lined up is a wand tea sorcerer. Um, which is very out of the norm for me. A wanty pure blood or a half breed? A uh, pure blood. Okay. Sorcerer, which I don't tend to play raw deeps, like raw magic damage dealers. Um, I don't, wouldn't have thought to play a snake, but I thought about it and I saw um, a picture of one on the Reddit, actually. Um, and I was like, hmm, what if? And I, I started doing sort of what you do. Um, I, you know, I, I draw from whatever I'm reading or watching at at the time. Um, but I, lately I've been drawing from a lot of uh, world lore. You know, I've been, I'm homebrewing my universe of Atos for uh, eight years now. And there is enough world lore that I've created that now I can go back and refer to things and use those to to build my characters so I don't know that I went down exactly the same list as you had but I knew it was a character that I it was designing it as a as a second character for that alt game so I knew I wouldn't be playing it super often I could you know experiment with something weird that I you know might not want to spend so much time with um, and then my narrative flashback, or my connection with canon, is, you know, the, the how do they fit in with my world? Even though they're about to be whisked into another one, I've built up all this lore that I am deeply immersed in, and and how do they fit? So, um, Jethis, the Wan-Ti sorcerer, uh, is a black, pure-blood Wan-Ti, uh, who is uh, a noble, really though he was shunned or removed from his kingdom for whatever reason. And he will go back, and he will start the revolution to claim his his rightful place as the ruler of that tribe. Um, and I imagine him as being pretty neutral evil, um, very selfish, 
not mindful of life. If he needs to kill somebody because they're in his way, he's the king and he will do so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I, so I've been branching out into to sort of evil characters a little bit more because I think that sort of stretches, you know, my comfort zone having played paladins and clerics for so long. Um, I think for as long as I can remember my uh, the driving force for my characters has been story or narrative like i've always wanted to to be you know the hero or the villain or the the something right um and and my motivations i don't know that i can divide them by decade because i you know to say i've been playing for two decades would be stretching it a little bit um just a little a little. I think I was six or seven when we started, so a couple, maybe this year. Um, maybe. But I'm, I, my motivations for developing characters has always been the characters' motivations. Um, and, and since college, I, you know, I majored in psychology, so I really like looking at it from, from that perspective. Um, and I'm going to take this time to do the plug for uh, redhoodiegames5.wordpress.com because I've got an assortment of character concepts posted over there uh, who are characters ha- who have their backstories in my world of Ados. And so the, the first character concept there is for Herod Mathros, the mushroom paladin, who is a, a paladin who was an ambassador to a... Elvish and Elvish kingdom, and after having spent so much time with druids and their lore and their religion, uh, he went to explore uh, a glade that paladins sort of looked over because it wasn't evil, and druids had all sorts of curiosity about simply because it was unknown, um, and and he ended up sort of I I don't know if mechanically he's a, a multi-class between a paladin and a druid or what. Um, but it sort of fundamentally changed him. Um, and then I've got characters that are like uh, Oldriska Cerny, the Mantis, who is uh, a young woman uh, assassin rogue. Uh, maybe she's a duelist rogue, actually, um, who was uh, pretty violently abused uh, in her adolescence and turned into a you know, rogue vigilante justice keeper so that she could go and stop and just murder men who were abusing women, basically. Um, Hence the title, The Mantis, because she beheads the men who are trying to uh, have inappropriate relations with their women. Um, So so I, I think that I have started diversifying my characters quite a lot. Um... And when I think about how I'm going to build, you know, what my perfect PC looks like, uh, I don't know that I have had many PCs that I haven't felt really connected to in one way or another, or that I couldn't find myself playing and really enjoying. Um, But since I have that psychology background, I analyze all of my characters quite a bit. So um, picking, you know, picking the race and class is neat, but I don't do that first. I do sort of what you do. I build the story first. Who are they as a child? Uh, Were they magical or non-magical? What were their friends and families like? How were they treated? Uh, What sort of trauma have they experienced? And did it result in stress or growth? Uh, And what other key events in their life have contributed to who they are at the time that I would start playing them? Um, And I I think 
some of that leads some of that is sort of my knowledge of human mechanics in that if you have a better connection with the wisdom intelligence charisma the mental stats of your character because um, you can roleplay those at the table, but you can't really roleplay your character's strength, dex, or con while you're like sitting at the table. So um, getting into the mental stats and the personality of a character is, is pretty important. And if you can do that well, then I would call that you know a relatively perfect PC. More so than one that you've spent a lot of time on, or one that you whipped up, or even a pre-built. But if you can get into it and, and be excited about playing that character uh that's sort of my you know not line for perfect but that's a pretty good bar to to try to achieve cool very cool yeah so we should probably get on with the show yeah i mean that was that that we've answered the the question (laughs) maybe we should do questions at the end i i thought maybe we could weave a little bit more in here um but that's okay uh, we can always change the title a little bit too, um, sure. but we were going to talk a little bit about handling bad roles because it came up on an earlier show where uh, you described a character uh, botching some role in a tavern so that they caught their shoe or pant leg on the, on a nail in the floor and and fall down and and they failed but it led to something. So so that's sort of how we got the idea and we've had some interesting discussion um in in the patron discord so you you've got you had some interesting stuff to say so i'm gonna let you say it okay so so where this comes from and and we talked a little bit about fudging rules right last show Mm -hmm. was all about oh crap i rolled this and it's really gonna derail the story or it's gonna kill the character Right. And and it's just that's not the story we want to have at the table. Let's let's fix that by changing the outcome of the dice. Um, this this is more subtle. And and it's something went wrong or something you you didn't pass a test. Um, what what happens? And I guess for for me, this this kind of goes back to something I read uh, I can't remember the source. I think it was one of Shannon Applecline's books. Um, but Gary Gygax was writing about the D&D combat system, and he said it's an abstraction. Uh, so right, if you're, if you're a human and you've leveled up and you have 90 hit points, it doesn't mean you can be stabbed in the chest 37 times before you die. Carl, uh, that kills people. It, it does kill people, but... <laughs> Your 90 hit points, it represents a um, your fighting prowess, and you know where to put your feet, and you know how to how to roll with a blow. So instead of getting cut deeply and, and injured, you get a, a nick or a scratch. Um, and as the as the damage is dealt to the character, it's wearing you out. You're getting tired. Um, you're getting scratched up. You're losing a little bit of blood here and there, uh, and you're getting bruised and sore. You might stretch a muscle, parrying the dagger one too many times, and then eventually, the the knife comes in and stabs you in the chest. You really only get stabbed in the chest once, maybe twice, maybe twice. 
Um, barbarians take a lot. They, they get hit a lot, but it's yeah. But it's the but that's you know if the barbarian was sound asleep and you took a, a knife and sh- jammed it into his throat, he dies. Um, and and that's kind of I, I've always liked that, and I, I get a, I'm always kind of looking for that in my groups instead of kind of the yep you hit him roll for damage yep you hit him roll for damage okay cool um we uh and and we've said it a couple times at the table it's like hey on a scale of zero to 48 damn how damaged would you say that character looks right because we all know you know the, that guy just got 48 hit points and and you know we're metagaming a little bit um Mm-hmm. But I look at checks and tests and throws and skill con- contested um, roles, wh- whatever the mechanic is, I look at those in the same kind of light. Like, if my character is going to be sneaky, it isn't like, okay, I'm going to – I'm trying to sneak into town and the, so the guards won't see me. I'm going to – look for a way to sneak in and there's some shadows over there and there's some shadows over there. Okay. Roll the dice. Yep. You were sneaky. You sneak in or, Oh, you weren't sneaky. Uh, now what do you want to do? It's like, well, that's, that's not really what's going on here. Right. If you're crouching down and trying to stay with the shadows and not step on any twigs and not knock anything off of shelves and, and not bump into anybody and, and get where you're trying to go. When you make the roll, right, there's a target number or what's CR, challenge rating? Yep. So so you've got to get over a certain threshold to The, the to DC succeed. is the, the skill check ones. So that's, right. you know, the, the die check, I think. The die check, yeah. So difficulty. Yes, there you go. Yeah. So, and, and lots of different games have these mechanics but for for me it's like you're you're trying you're gonna if your character is gonna do this you're gonna commit to it yeah and you roll and if the roll comes up bad i as a dm always like to throw in something that happens in the game space that makes that failure manifest itself right it right. isn't you, just, you did something it's not right. you didn't do it you, right you you took an action the your planned outcome didn't happen you you still crouched down and right i mean i'm i'm having flashbacks of the office right when michael scott is low crawling out of his office so people in the conference <laughs> room can't can't see him everybody else in the office sees him right yes He's not being stealthy. He failed his stealth roll. <laughs> yep. No, that's and, a good way to think of it. You were you, as soon as you began to talk about it in terms of abstraction. Um, I think that that is something that a lot of newer DMs probably don't think about uh, quite as much because, in terms of you know the stealth roll, you've got uh, the long shadow on the left side of the hallway and sort of a, a short flickering shadow on the right side, but maybe if you can wait a minute, that torch will burn out because um, the guard is standing on the, the left and it'd be better if you could go to the right. Um, but I think a lot of, especially for stealth mechanics, where if we're 
I, I don't love it, but I think we get a lot of inspiration from video games, and stealthing in video games is like turning magically invisible most of the time, which is not how stealthing in like 5e works, for example. Um, and so thinking of it as that abstraction, I think is a really helpful way for newer DMs to to really know what that means when a player does a skill check or attempts to do something that that merits a check like that. Um, I mean, and, and I've been playing a bard a lot, so I've been making a lot of performance rolls. And it's like, if I fail a performance roll, I got up, I sang, my, my bard has a high charisma, she's a level seven bard, she obviously knows how to sing. Um, it isn't, you know, you get on stage and you get all hoarse and start coughing and you can't sing, it's... You they the don't wrong. like you. They don't. They don't like you're. You're singing to you know. I'm a. I'm a gnome. So my. I'm a soprano. It's like yeah. They. They weren't expecting such a high pitched singer. You picked the wrong song, right? You're singing a sea shanty. Oh sure. And, um, because you sang a sea shanty last time you were singing at this place, and it was full of sailors and men at arms. And, oh look, it's a. Pil- you know the pilgrims who are on a pilgrimage to a holy site stopped in and they don't like your body sea shanty they wanted something a little bit more reserved so yeah you give a, a narrative reason for the failure and not just say oh it doesn't work right um, and sometimes uh you get sometimes even a. I think sometimes we get caught up on like natural ones and natural twenties too, where I, I've had uh, I had the bard in my group roll a very high performance check uh, when he was attempting to perform for a previously uncontacted uh, race of rodent folk, um, and he was playing a lute, and and they they had never heard that, and their music is not like that, and even though the performance was very good. That's not something that they would culturally appreciate, and so he, he didn't. I didn't give him a "you fail," but I gave him a "the rat covers his ears and starts screeching, no sings, no songs," because um, he didn't like it. Right. And and I think for new DMs, there's and and I, there might be, what are the hurdles, right? So if you're a new DM, you might lack a little bit of confidence, um, and you might worry that your players are gonna expect uh, something different expect something different or they're gonna quibble right right so i got an 18 on the stealth why why can't i get past this guy it's like you got the 18 but it's midday (laughs) right it's midday um it's it's the natural siesta time for the town so there's nobody on the streets except for the guards they're bent out of shape that they're not taking a nap. So guess what they're doing? They're looking to jack people up at the gate. Uh, and and they rolled a natural 20 on their observation roll. So, yeah, you rolled an 18. They rolled a 20. They see you. Um, and that's – that's so that's that quibbling thing um, is there. And then there's the risk that the um, – where did I put that? I'm checking my notes here. Um, there's the risk that the players are going to use whatever you put into the game um, to go off the rails, right? So if you <laughs> fail the stealth roll, like you're, you're 
you're trying to leave the party without being noticed, right? You've you've got the information that you want from the marquee. Um, the waltzes are starting, and you're like, you know, we're done. I'm not gonna dance. I don't want to dance and get drunk. I, I have I have to take this information uh, and deliver it to to my contact. Mm-hmm. And so you're trying to leave the party unobserved, and you bump into a waiter and spill a tray of drinks. Um, right. The very and, Steve Martin. Yeah. The, or the, um, you could worry that your party is going to all of a sudden, you know, blame the waiter and whip out a dagger and, you know, start a fight. And, and traditionally you're, again, you have to worry, think about what your group is doing, but a lot of times players won't do that. Right. If if you put a MacGuffin in there and it's clearly a MacGuffin, right? It's it's yeah. You bumped into the waiter and he's, he spilled some drinks. He he dropped the tray. The the champagne glasses smash. A bunch of people turn and look and hey, there's there's um, Giuseppe. Why is he by the door? Why does he have his coat on? Is he leaving already? No, no, stay. Uh, they might have to stay a little bit longer at the party and that'll cause the story to to go off the rails i don't think the story will go off the rails right no i mean you 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 make it you make it work right right it's yeah i don't know that i would ever and and part of this comes down to you know if you're homebrewing or or using or if you're using a module you know be aware of the these we talked about them a little bit but like the the game breaking roles where you fail that one really important check to get out of there, and now all of a sudden people are like, "Wait, why was Giuseppe here? What's go? Why? Yeah, what's going on?" And now all of a sudden there's all this suspicion that there never should have been, um, which I think for a you know a DM, it's hard to hand wave that because you're not really hand waving it. You have to come up with something on the fly as to why that is not. Why is that marquee now not going to investigate him? Like, wh- where's the group of people who stop him on the docks and are like, "Hey, w- why'd you bounce? What's going on?" Um, and and that's yeah. I, th- I think confidence is one of those things, um, like you said. And and just t- take a pause. I mean, if you need to, I'm a planner, right? Flow charter. Uh, mm-hmm. Think it out, right? You're the you're the the Montaigne Marquis. You've got 200 people in your estate. Uh, you've been planning this affair for a month, right? You at least huge, out, huge outlay of cash uh, for the string quartet and the food. There's people you want to talk to. Are you going to stop this whole party and cause a massive social scene because one Vodace sailor? Uh, broke some glasses uh maybe not right Pro- yeah. probably not maybe not right and, and and if you and and if the party they're gonna try and do something grandiose and party breaking that that's where as a gm i'd kind of time out call a timeout with the party um you know break break let's talk about what's gonna happen you you guys are thinking about turning this into a uh, an action combat scene. It was a social scene. If you do that, it's going to be the, this and 
Nope, you're uh, you're you're uh, roboting out on us again. We change where the story goes. So you were talking about how uh, taking a break from the interaction and and discussing with your players that it will you know the, the results of their attempted skill check are are going to change the nature of the scene. Um, and that's right. and, that's where we gotcha. And 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 not not necessarily the it I guess for a new DM the 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 fear and trepidation comes from what's the party gonna do next? Now that you've failed or botched this stealth check or failed or botched a even a friendship role, like a, a, a trying to persuasion, a persuasion yeah. role or, or check. Um, like, oh, if, if they don't succeed, they're going to get violent. Or if they don't succeed, they're going to go do something else. Um, and, and they're going to leave kind of the, they're going to leave the rails and go be lost and, and not get what's going on in the game. Um, and it takes away from what you have prepared as a DM. Because if your plan sure. was for them to stay at the party for some time, or for them to rendezvous with an NPC who is like, you've got to meet me on the docks in an hour or I'm leaving without ya. Like if you. Like, if you've set yourself up into a... And again, this is, you know, if you're if you're homebrewing something, try to avoid those, those game-breaking role checks. Um, or... or or maybe that time constraint is important, and that will change the story in a way that you weren't prepared for. But if your players are still interested, then maybe that makes a, a more compelling story, or it makes the players feel more like they have an impact on the story. Um, so even it gives those them moments more agency, right? Yes, and that's yes. and that's where I like break, break. Let's come out of character. Let's talk about where we want the story to go. If you miss the meeting with the spy on the docks uh you still have to get that information to to queen elaine now you're gonna now this is gonna turn into a sea race so the the guy at the docks is gonna take bad information to queen elaine and now you've got to race the bad information across the ocean to get back to avalon uh to save the day is that the kind of are we good with that and if everyone's like yep we're good with that um then you know, okay, everybody back into character, and and let's let's press on. So um, I I I feel like I don't. All right, so I don't want this to to cause a whole big thing because I don't want us to to go on for too too long here. But I don't like that as a solution. No, as a DM, nor for a player. Because as a player, I tried my absolute hardest not to meta game, and as a DM, I am not about to to spark metagaming in the way that that would like if you are so you've just knocked over the glasses by the waiter at the door with your coat on and your other group members are uh dancing with the the mark marquee to keep him distracted and uh somebody else is is waiting outside like if the party is you know split up and ready to go there's no way they'd be able to talk about what's going to happen um, you know, that, that party member who's dancing with the marquee is going to have to do something drastic to try to get him to not pay attention at the moment. Or if he does, they'll have to roll their own stealth check to try to disappear quickly so as to not further arouse suspicion. But 
as a DM, okay. I would I would weave I, I would improv right away and make all of the decisions from that point. Um, just n- narrative choices, like you this, you can't have a conversation with your teammates right now. Like that's not it's not possible. So what what do you do? And and we'll deal with the consequences of it. Okay. No, I that's totally well. That I mean that feeds into my my last point, which is uh, there are some times when I just don't roll. And and we haven't had the mathy uh, lesson. The <laughs> we haven't done the math session yet, but this might we be a good for math session. But if if you look at like okay, I'm a level eleven assassin and I'm sneaking by level one guards, right? Your probability of failure is around five percent. That's a, a natural one on a d twenty. A natural one on a d twenty is five percent. Because even if you roll a two as a level eleven assassin, the least you're going to roll is a fifteen. So, right, and and the and if it's an opposed roll, the guards are going to have right. They're sleepy. It's nighttime. There's a bunch of negative modifiers. But let's say you roll the natural one. Well, what's what's a level eleven assassin going to do to a country bumpkin guard? Probably Mur- like murder them. Either murder them or walk up to them and say, "You didn't see me. If you see, you didn't you saw see me, anything. You, you can't see it, but I do the penguin hands. <laughs> say what again? <laughs> what? <laughs> but so so then you're making an intimidation roll against mm-hmm. a level from a level eleven to a level one, and you again have a five percent chance of failure. But if you look at those that whole whole span. It's a 0.25% chance of failure that the assassin's going to get into town unobserved or unreported. Mm-hmm. Why, why bother rolling at that point? Right. Like the chances are so infinitesimally small. And what's the outcome? It doesn't have a big impact on the story. So Potentially. But, right. It doesn't have a p- big potential impact on the story. Now – if the guards are looking for this assassin and he's supposed to be arrested on site, that's a different story. But if this is mm-hmm. just a, yeah, I'm out of poison and I need to go steal some from the, from the shop, getting into town silently, I'm not going to make them roll. The theft, yeah, I'll probably make them roll for the threat for the theft itself, right? Because um, there's more on the line with that, but yeah. Um, so, so there's, there's a lot of times where, and, and I've, I favor systems like seventh C or DCC, where if you say it, you do it like there, you don't need a umpty million skill check rolls. Right. I'm not saying that I don't like Like I like five. I like pathfinder. I like Starfinder. rolling skill checks is fun. Um, I mean, rolling dice is fun, but, but rolling yeah. dice is fun. Sure. And and making that skill check can can be exciting, uh, but I, I yeah. But I, do you I, really I, need to? Is the question, and right. I, and I think that this is important to bring up too because a lot of newer DMs make the mistake of over rolling skill checks, trying to to create tension or anticipation where there doesn't necessarily need to be any. So like I walk into I walk in to the next room. What do I see? Roll a perception check. You're like, I, I'm in the room. Like, just what do I see? Like, before I, you even describe anything to me, I'm rolling dice. And, like, 
even if I roll a natural one, like, what do I, like, take a second to put my finger in my eye and and I have to rub some dirt out and then I get to look at the room? Like, it, you know, do you really need to roll for what they're asking to do? And I think right. some of it comes down to, to players, too, because some players will ask constantly, can I roll for this? Can I roll for that? Um, and and I, I don't... I, not that I would prefer that, but I certainly don't mind that as opposed to players who don't ask to do anything and sort of wait for me to ask for things. Where I think that if, if like my 5e players all had an experience in 7c where they got to just say, hey, this is what I'm doing, they might do that more in 5e which would create a more organic experience. Like, hey, I wanna, I wanna get into the shop without people noticing. Okay, you, you know, it's it's nighttime. There's not, it's not a heavily guarded section of town, or there might not be many guards in town anyway. You get up to the door. Uh, okay, I, I, you know, can I roll to pick the lock? That's sort of what I would expect. But if they were used to that sort of narrative, I, I pick the lock. Like, okay, turns out it's not locked. Oh, all right. You enter the shop. Uh, what do I see? Do I need to roll perception or investigation to find what I'm looking for? Maybe. Are you looking for something really rare? Investigation check. Are you looking to just steal a, another handful of daggers? They're probably on the shelf. Um, so, and, so you and... know, do you really need to roll is a great question. And players feeling like they have that agency to say this is what I want to do without anticipating a role is, is sort of what makes the role. When you get told by your DM, make a perception role. It's like, Ooh, now it's something that I might or might not see. Yeah. And, and in your example, I'm a huge believer in take the 10 or take the 20. Okay. So, so you're in the shop. It's not locked. It's a, it's a rag and bone shop, right? It's you're you're in Lankmar. You're in a rag and bone store, which is right. It's it's just the sundries and leavings of peop, old people who have died. So mm -hmm. there's shawls and cloaks and scarves and some canes and a couple of knives and some cut you know some some pots and pans. Um, maybe maybe some artifacts, right? Maybe there's an interesting artifact in here, but you you know it's it's dark. No one's gonna be by this way for at least four hours you are you the level 11 assassin anyway so you've got the dexterity to know what you can and can't do by that level and and if you you know it's like go look for this right i mean if if you get sent to the pan if your mom sent you to the pantry to find rice and you didn't see the rice what are you gonna do well, you, you um, keep looking. You keep looking, right? Uh, so, so that's kind of where that whole take the ten or take the twenty. You know, you roll perception. You didn't see it. Okay, that means you didn't see it right away. Now you're going to spend two hours looking. Sure. Or you get. I, I think another mistake, maybe maybe mistake that new DMs do is is after they fit, you, you know you're in the shop you're looking for that artifact that mr johnson left in his house when he died that some collector wants um you know you roll the investigation and you get a two it's like well well do i just keep rolling until i get the 10 
Well, so th that's a that's a good question. So if you roll it, so let's say. Well, that's like that's why you would use the take the ten rule. So I don't know that we've explained right. what that is, but if you're unfamiliar, uh, many systems have an option to take a ten, which if you given that you're not making the check in some tense emergent situation um a level 11 assassin in an empty shop on an empty street in the middle of the night is going to be able to you know have an average degree of success at looking for a sack of rice um so by taking the 10 you just you know you would have an average skill at this you get a 10 plus your modifiers like what, what do you get so that's that rule. And that just takes time, right? And then take the 20 mm -hmm. just takes twice as long as take the 10. Right. So uh, I, I want to find the artifact, and I know there's a lot of stuff in this store. I only got a 13 on my investigation. The DC, even though the player might not know it, was a 15. So you you wait you know, two hours later after sort of rummaging around very quietly, very slowly, you do manage to find the little jade idol. Right. Um. Yeah, now, if they roll one, I like that. If they, if they I botch should do it, that more. One of the things that I like to do is they botched it. They found what they think is a jade idol, but it's uh, a soapstone, a green soapstone mm. idol. It's the wrong idol. All so right. that's now, that's kind of the different. The difference for me is if you roll that nat one. You found something. It's not. You think it's the right thing, but it's not. I um, would have the nat one be. You think you find it, and you open the box, and it turns out to be like this music or or a jack in the box that goes ha, and now you hear some some creaking that, above, and you from the stairs you see the flicker of a candle as somebody shouts down hello. Yeah. And yeah. No, that's got a, good, a that's a good way to do it too. Now, now you um, roll initiative and find out if you have time to make that one more check to find what you're looking for. Look, look in one more place. Roll one more investigation. See if you're lucky enough to find it. And yeah. now that roll becomes important, where the roll right. to get into an unlocked door was not, not, was not necessary. Although then, sometimes I do some of those just to let people roll dice. Like if it has been a, a pretty heavy RP session or there hasn't been a lot of die rolling, sometimes I'll do some of those so that people get to roll more dice and they get a little bit more of that, that tactile fun. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Um, so I, I, we spent, you know, this is pretty half and half. I'm going to have to rename this episode 12 patron question slash outcomes for bad rolls. Um, but I think we've covered uh, a pretty good. Actually, some of the things that came up were really big for for newer DMs, um, in terms of you know how do you the abstraction that is hit points or skill checks, and how failing isn't just you do it or you don't. Like you said, you do it. So what's the outcome, and what what happens next? Like you said earlier. Um, and taking the ten and taking the twenty. I'm gonna have to let my players do that a little bit more because some of them have some high passive skills and i don't i don't often use passive skills outside of passive perception but i mm -hmm. might think of that more now as taking the 20 so like you want to perform well you spend 10 minutes doing a warm-up you spend 10 minutes tuning your loot and a half an hour later you deliver a stirring performance 
but the guy that you wanted to perform for has left the tavern. Like, if I need to right. do narrative things like that, I still can without taking away that skill that players have, like, work, you know, worked pretty hard to obtain. And, and failure doesn't have to automatically be a negative... I mean, that's the other thing, too, that, that I've been thinking about as we've been talking, is that yeah, it, it didn't go off the way you wanted it to, but that doesn't mean that you necessarily had a massively negative outcome. Right. Right. If you go to a show and you don't like the comedian, how many people boo? Like, actually stop the show and start booing? Nobody. I shouldn't say nobody, but it's rare. Yeah, it's, that's right? definitely more of a you see it in movies, not in real life thing. Right, and and I'm in the tavern. The bard botches, doesn't meet the the target number for their performance check. It's like ah, you know she she's singing out of tune tonight, or ah, I don't, you know ah, oh, that's that's no good. Like the the consequence of the role doesn't have to happen immediately. I guess that's 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 kind of where my, my mind is going. Yeah, and it doesn't Just have be to be drastic either. You know, we think right. of natural ones and natural twenties being really extreme differences, but a natural twenty on a performance check for somebody who doesn't understand the language you're performing in probably doesn't care. And a natural one to an audience of old people who are half drunk sailors already falling asleep and half the people at the tables are humming anyway they probably don't care. Probably don't care. And and you, as the player, probably won't get the feedback that you were bad. Right, which is not something I mean, that you want very often as a player anyway. Well, no, but it, I mean, you, you, you go into the tavern, you offer to sing some songs for, for supper. Um, the, bar, the, the bartender, the, the tavern innkeeper says sure sure go ahead and you don't hit the target number so you finish your songs you sit down at the bar and the bartender goes yeah that was interesting and they hand you a bowl of gruel or or worse a bill <laughs> right well they said they would you know you could sing for your supper and instead of you know oh, a lamb yeah. chop have a have a delicious lamb chop and a glass of our finest mead they give you a bowl of oatmeal at nine o'clock at night. It's like a cold bowl of oatmeal at nine o'clock <laughs> at night, right? Yeah. It isn't, it isn't, you know, you failed and everyone's booing, get off the stage. It's you sang your song, nobody really liked it, and you didn't get the reward you were expecting. So so it doesn't have to be – That's yeah, that's basically what I was trying to yeah, say. Yeah, it, does, it doesn't have to be massively negative. It doesn't have to be immediate. Okay, you failed and boom, this happens. It could be – you thought you were doing a good job. You didn't really do a good job, and you're not even going to know about it until later in the game, kind of kind of thing. Hmm. Um, you, know, you, you get to the next town, and you try that. Hey, can I sing for my supper? And it's like, um, oh no, yeah. The the king's guard stopped by and said that there was a bard in the last town. It was terrible. So you're not that bard, are you? <laughs> No. <laughs> Deception check. And you passed. Oh, good. Thank God you're not that bard. We wouldn't want them singing here. Go ahead. Have a sing. Have a sing song. <laughs> and now perform with disadvantage while you are disparaged. 
Yeah, you're you're sad. You're, you're nervous. Um, there's one one thing that I want to bring up um, that I saw okay. on a Reddit post, um, and we talked about hit points as an abstraction. Um, and this Reddit post was uh, a reflection of somebody who ran a session without ever using the word miss. So whenever you would miss in combat, you don't. But the narrative description for that is, you you know, you slam your longsword at the hobgoblin, but he manages to raise his shield in time. The, sh the sword goes arcing across the shield. Um, thinking about hit points in an abstraction, having it not be that binary hit or miss, um, I think can really help that. Because you could hit right and still hit the shield but the way that you've hit it causes that hobgoblin to strain his arm and i, I think right. some of that is just comes down to how much you know the confidence of the dm to to narrate the situation as opposed to acting as the uh you know just the mechanical aspects of the world because um, well, and, and the I, I mechanics think, lend themselves to that kind of because you you roll a to hit and right. then you roll damage and it's natural like i rolled a good to hit i hit him yes you you hit him i rolled a i rolled high on my to hit i must have hit him really well N not really you 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 hit them right and then you roll damage wow i rolled max damage i must have i put my sword through his head it's like it's a 90 hit point person no you know yes the the you you did some you damaged them you you made you, them you worried them quits. you they're now they have a bruise on their their shoulder or they they tore a muscle and in, in or you cracked a rib like no or you, you just or it's just tiring them out you know lowering their out. ability to defend themselves until somebody lands that final hit and actually does drive the blade through their chest I mean, but we, I, we could think... probably have an entire show about um, how to narrate combat and how to how to run a combat session. That probably would be a good show, unless Maybe. it's already on the list. Me... Um, it's not. I just added narrating combat because I think that that's important, and I I just opened a can of worms that easily could be an hour long discussion, which um, we can't do because we're running. No, we're we're end. just about there. Yeah. Um, right. I think my, my final thoughts are, are, you know, really embracing that thinking about it in terms of an abstraction where, you know, your armor class doesn't determine if their weapon connects with you or not. You know, it's possible in a combat, their weapon connects with you every time and your hit points aren't how much blood is in your body. <laughs> it's right. how many times can you get hit, you know, how many times can you block an attack with your shield before you can't raise your shield in time to block anymore? Ugh, anymore. Um, and I, I think that that is probably like, if, if you're a new DM, that's a big takeaway. You know, it, it's all a narrative. It's a shared mental experience. Um, and, and abstraction is a good way to think about it. And different systems handle it very, very differently. Oh yeah, yeah. We we right. we're gonna we have a another deep dive coming up. That's gonna be in uh, two two more episodes, and then the two next more. will be the deep dive. Um, we're still talking about what we want it to be, but I'm hoping that those deep dive sessions give people may, maybe a little bit of a nudge to try a different system and, and see how that plays out and see how 
the narrative style or the narrative expectations of a DM or GM uh, mesh with the way that they prefer to run the game? Do you want combat to be really fast-paced with, okay, you hit, you miss, you do this damage, you don't do this damage? Or do you want it to be very narrative and drawn out? Um, yeah, I think that'll be a good one. Do you have any closing thoughts on uh, on handling handling poor roles? I do not. I think that you have, have added quite a lot of insight, and your answer to the patron question was, was pretty great. I, I got some stuff out of that, too. Um, so oh, I hope good. that our, our listeners do, and I hope our, our patron enjoys that. So that's going to do it for uh, for Set the Table, episode 12. Um, I, I've already plugged redhoodiegames5.wordpress.com. Go check that out for tabletop content you can use at home. And if you want to support us any more than just listening, or if you want to have a question asked and answered in depth like we just did, head on over to patreon.com slash skoda, where for even a dollar you can join us on the patron discord and, uh, and chat. So uh, we will see you next time. Thanks very much. Good day. Eh?